This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, would you rather own a small shack in Toronto with some free graffiti on the side or a castle in Scotland? They cost the same, according to some online listings, and we know that because of the Millennial Moron. The Millennial Moron is an online star who shares and compares Canadian prices of houses to international ones to give us the insight and some real perspective of the Canadian housing market and how crazy it is. Are you okay with citizenship, becoming Canadian? What about realtors? And doom scrolling is no fun, but science can tell us why we just want to keep on doing it. Our brain wants more of it. On the world of weird things, Greg Fish helps us understand why our brains get sucked into doom scrolling and how we can break the habit. It's all on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. I have quoted this guy so many times on the shift, and he's finally here. His handle online is the millennial moron. That is what he goes by, and it seems like I am collecting millennials in my life these days, um, an expensive bunch. And this is where this is fun, because this millennial moron is uh, being financially responsible and sending an example, I think, for all Canadians. Now, there is a reason to anonymity in this, and we are going to respect that. The millennial moron is a Canadian. I can confirm he does live in Canada, and why he looks at Canadian real estate is exactly that. So I got to uh, welcome. Do you like to go by MM or moron? Or like, what, what do you prefer? Uh, MM, moron, anything is fine. I find most of the time people just call me you. Hey, you. Hey, guy. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for, for being here. Me. You do some really great stuff online. I appreciate that. If you don't uh, aren't familiar with the millennial moron on Instagram and all the different TikTok and all the different connections, uh, you do a lot of analytical stuff around real estate, pointing out obvious hypocrisy that's going on in real estate. But the basics of what you do is you're the guy that I've shared stories about. You can buy this dilapidated, graffiti-laden house in downtown Toronto for one point whatever million or a fully furnished castle in Scotland. You're that guy. I am that guy. That's cool. How'd you get started in this? Why Why did you start making these videos? Were you house shopping or, or what happened? Well, uh, this started, I guess, back in uh, maybe 2011 or so when I was living in the GTA. And, uh, you know, I was like many people uh, my age was being pushed into buying a house because it was the thing you're expected to do. And I started looking at the numbers of owning versus renting, and it just really didn't make sense to me. And I started to wonder, you know, how could everyone be so crazy about real estate? Why are they throwing all of their money at it? And, uh, you know, I just watched the the situation get worse and worse over the years. And then uh, a few years back, I had this idea of how many, uh, you know, rundown dilapidated Canadian properties would it take to buy your own private island, you know, or some other kind of luxury real estate. And to my surprise, the answer was one. And uh, I looked up, yeah, I looked up a lot of uh, examples at the time, but I could never figure out a way to make it funny enough that I thought it was worth publishing. And then just about uh, six months ago, I hit on this video format and it really took off and I've just been going at it from there. Oh, it's a great example, by the way, of if you have a passion, just you got to get started and try it. Let that be the lesson that's learned in this because you've certainly done that with the socials online. Um, well, um, Mr. Moron, sir, the uh, <laughs> I'm going to work on this. I got to figure this out. Um, you, uh, but you though, like you're kind of angry, but you're very funny. And, but you, so you, you do deliver it very pragmatically and it's delightful but I mean, I don't know how you deliver these videos every day and frankly not get mad, dude. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, I've kind of gotten past the point of being uh, mad about it and gotten more distant to the point of trying to very pointedly explain to people about it. And I think people are finally ready to listen to it being laid out in a very, you know, step-by-step -step analytical way. Um, you know, not only my own generation, but... Uh, the next generation as well, right? Generations that they've, I think, been given an even shorter stick than we have. And uh, they're, you know, um, not buying into the myth of real estate so much as my generation did because they never really even had a chance to get into it. Mm -hmm. It's really been shut off from them. And uh, I think more and more people are getting upset about it and uh, they are ready to do something about it. And they don't need another angry person to tell them that they're already angry. They need somebody to lay out the facts for them. And that's what I'm trying to do. You're doing a good job with that. I think that's that's pretty fantastic. I would say it's not only millennials, though, but I mean, every divorced Gen Xer 
is going through exactly what you're talking about too. Because not only are they have they taken perhaps their previous home investments, but now they've cut their capital in half. Or they also um, haven't, not only have they cut their capital in half, but they've they, now they've got to qualify at whole different rates because they've got child support, spousal support, whatever the deal is too. So I mean, you are tapping into a much, I think a much larger audience than you might realize. Sure. And even for the uh, baby boomer generation, uh, my parents, for example, a lot of them had planned for retirement to take this rising home equity they built up and then downsize and use the difference as part of the funding for their retirement, right? Yeah. I'm sure you've heard of that idea. Yep. But what we're finding is that the prices of housing have risen so high that even if you do downsize the transaction costs and the moving costs and all the taxes on those uh, on the transaction are so high that by the time you've downsized to a smaller place, which is also a huge cost to buy that smaller place in the first place, you barely have anything left over after you've sold and bought the new place. So a lot of people are finding that their retirement is not looking like they're expected. And that is, I think, why, for example, reverse mortgages are the fastest form of or fastest growing form of debt in the country. Yeah, and HELOCs, right? Um, it's So let me ask you this then. There's some financial teachers that teach that in your net worth spreadsheet, when you could calculate your value, your net worth, never include your primary residence because you're always going to need a place to live. Uh, would you say that that's probably a pretty good look is to take that home out of that calculation in general? I think that's a good uh, defensive outlook to take, yeah, in terms of building your finances in a way that's going to be sustainable long term. I, for example, like I consider my primary residence to be an expenditure rather than an asset that forms part of my overall net worth. Yeah, I mean, you can leverage it, sure, but it's not... Um... Uh, it doesn't shouldn't actually be thought of as cash because it's you're always going to need a place to live until you're dead. It's an asset could be an asset for your kids, but it's not a hazard for you, sure. right? Like that's uh, that's that's one of the things that we make, and I think it creates a false sense of security to it. Now, uh, yeah, you even have on your link tree, you even have some spreadsheets, some calculations, and all this stuff. I, is that part of it for you? Is to break down the like figuring out's one thing, telling the story is another thing. Um, but then you've got some spreadsheets and stuff that you even share that are helpful for people to look at this stuff. What part of it is, um, which really gets you going? I, I, I guess I can't quite f see yet what comes first, the cart or the horse for you. For me, I think the spreadsheets when I'm developing them are kind of a way to convince myself that I'm correct, that what I'm saying is correct before I put it out there into the world. And then, you know, I publish them so that not only people can um, you know, use them if they find them helpful in some way, but also as a form of transparency, right? To make sure that you know I'm not putting any false information out there to let other people check if I made any mistakes. What do you see now? You've spoken about bubbles a lot in your videos. Um, in the analytics and everything else, you have some that share some really great uh, graphs and whatever where things are, some patterns of, of, of the value. And what do you see for bubbles that, that we go through here? Because there's an awful lot going on in the world when it comes to racing for money, high interest rates, the value of these houses. For me, one of the stinky pieces is the land transfer tax inside provinces is not being talked about and how provinces are absolutely benefiting off of all of this. What do you see? Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that are all tied to our housing bubble here. Like, I certainly do think we are in a housing bubble. Um, and there are a lot of incentives at all levels to keep that going. For example, you have the uh, baby boomer generation who is a huge voting block and they've got a lot of their net worth and uh, assets tied up in housing. Uh, you've got a lot of um, tax incentives from, well, not tax incentives from, but tax incentives for municipal and provincial governments who are making money off of real estate transactions and property taxes. And then, you know, at the federal government level, even a lot of MPs are property investors or they have donors who are involved in real estate. And there's really incentives at every level for the government to keep a price floor on housing. And I think they're very, very scared of what the consequences would be for, you know, both themselves politically and for the broader economy if home prices are allowed to drop. But at the same time, I feel like we're starting to run out of rope on this, you know, fear of missing out and cheap debt cycle that we're in. And, you know, eventually you can only turn the knob so, so far before everything has to stop, right? Mm -hmm. It cannot be sustained indefinitely when nobody can afford housing. Well, and that's how ghost towns are created, right? When the money drives up, towns become ghost towns, everybody leaves. 
And yep. I, you, you're sort of seeing that migration into Alberta of late because of housing prices and some uh, handy marketing, I think, from the Alberta government, uh, Ontario getting poached the most because it, it's tough to do that. I'll share it. Let me share a personal story with you. Millennial Moron is here on The Shift. I'm Shane Hewitt. And so ta- Ottawa, I don't know if you've done a lot of work around Ottawa. I'm sure it's something that you look at. The um, Around 25 minutes from downtown, call it 30 minutes. Now, where I would say, for me, you're looking at Calgary. So that's about Airdrie. It's about Okotoks, really, from downtown, from what I'm familiar with. Like 30 minutes out of downtown. Where is Where does downtown Toronto start anymore? That's a tough one. But 30 minutes out of downtown, you're starting to get into Burlington, Oakville, I suppose, as long as traffic's not too bad. And Vancouver, 30 minutes out of downtown, you're uh, tiptoeing your way towards Burnaby and Langley. So a townhouse in Ottawa, which is not a very big city in the scope of all the ones I just gave examples from, $685,000 for a townhouse, three bedrooms, very basic, um, single car attached garage, probably a very poster stamp of a yard. Now that sounds like a very high price, but it's actually not too far out of control when you look at some of the other cities. Where I am here, that's a $400,000 townhouse. In Ottawa, of all places, it's all—it's like 1.6% of the price. Staggering numbers when you really start to dig into them. This is how I don't understand how you don't get angry, by the way. Yeah, well, I mean, I do see how this has happened. And it's just this, um, the fact that we've had these rock bottom interest rates for you know, 10 years, and they've only been falling, right, has allowed people to take their same income and continue bidding up the price of housing. Uh, I did do a video uh, focused on this cheap debt issue. And you can actually see that if you look at the borrowing power that people have on a given income and uh, in, for a given um, for a given mortgage payment, right, how much they could borrow for a given mortgage payment in real dollars, so inflation adjusted over time, and the price of housing over time, has really been in line for the last uh, you know, 10, 15 years. They've tracked each other very closely. But then in these last uh, two years or over the last 18 months, when we've seen interest rates rising dramatically and then home prices rising at the same time as, uh, as people are trying to rush into the market you know, before it's too late, in their opinion, before interest rates go even higher or before home prices go even higher, that's where we've seen that ratio of those two things really go completely out the window like it's risen from you know it, it tended to hover around uh i made an index and it hovered around you know one to 1.2 and then recently it's it's just shot up to uh you know around 1.7 1.8 so if you look at just the monetary supply that people have had access to through the lending system we've seen the equivalent of something like a 65 percent increase in the cost of carrying a home just in these last couple of years uh so well- yeah. Well, let me ask you a question about that because um, real estate agents for the most part aren't going to like me. And I, there are a lot of great real estate agents out there that will actually take care of you and do a good job. I'm So I'm not dismissing those people that are the agents of service. It doesn't take any education in economics or finance to work in real estate. You take the courses and they teach you what they teach you, but these are people that benefit off of higher prices. Um, I'm not going to allege price fixing, but the whole notion of comparables and basing value off of what somebody else paid in itself, there's no other real way to do it, but in itself is fundamentally flawed because what happens is, is somebody likes a house because they think it's a pretty color of purple and then they buy that house for whatever value they want. Everyone else pays more and more and more. And so it's not an educated person in most cases that is running the prices of our number one economic driver right now of real estate and retirement in Canada. These are people who have taken a course. I find that problematic. Yeah, and I think you've hit on a really key issue there, which is that the entire industry runs on commissions. So everyone from you know the mortgage broker through to the realtor who closes the deal, uh, or even the people who are you know building new pre-construction housing, these are people who are all interested in seeing both prices being high and market sentiment, believing that prices will go higher in the future so that it makes sense to buy at any price right now. And for them, it doesn't really matter if the prices go down in the future or if something bad happens to the buyer. 
because they've already collected their commission in cash, right? And as you said, you know, a lot of the people in the industry are not going to do that just because they're good people. But there are people who, you know, who want to make the maximum amount of money possible and might be willing to do, you know, either unethical things or just things that are, you know, somewhat questionable, like advising people that this is a good price. Or we had, uh, you know, for the last couple of years, more than half of the new mortgages being originated in Canada were variable rate mortgages. And there was a small uh, commission incentive that mortgage brokers were getting from you know lenders to push variable rate mortgages because they were more profitable. But a lot of them also, you know, they believed because of what the Bank of Canada had said that rates were going to stay low for longer. But at the same time, you know, there should have been a nagging voice in their head saying, you know, what's going to happen to this person if interest rates start going up? But they have a financial incentive to ignore that voice and just close the deal. Well, and they get paid up front. They don't get paid on the success of it. It's a lot like politicians. Politicians get paid to spend your money and look good doing it. The bigger the number, the better they look, but it's not their money, right? That's really fundamentally what's happening inside real estate. Agents are spending your money and then they get paid for it. And that that's a that's a thing. I Look, I... I, I know I'm banging on real estate agents. And again, I need to declare that I realize there are a whole bunch of absolutely ethical, kind real estate agents that are out there. I also know that people who became real estate agents, their previous job was a coked out bartender. And I have a problem with that. And I, I, there's a list of more than one as I DJ to nightclubs all across this country. I've seen a lot of it. So that's a blanket statement. So again, all I'm saying is that they drive the economy with no education it's a problem to me. Millennial Moron is here. And um, okay, the fun stuff, the castles. You talked about the one house equals an island in some places. Can we talk? I love castles. And so can you give me some of the examples? I like the Austria. Is the purple house in Australia on your feed? We're going to share the Instagram, by the way, at shiftheads.ca on the on the Facebook group so everyone can follow along and, and see some of these videos. But I like the little Australia house, the purple house, but you've done a really great job with the castles. Can you give us a couple of Canadian examples in castles? Uh, Canadian examples in castles. Uh, it's, I'd have to think about it more. I wasn't, didn't really prepare to have a list of examples right. ready. I don't, I don't mean a list. There was the one you had done downtown Toronto. I think it was downtown Toronto or downtown Vancouver, and it was a Scottish castle. It was just recently that I saw that one for the first time. Um, yeah, it, that was one of the more popular ones, yeah. Quite a stark difference. Uh, maybe describe that one for me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I do remember that one. That was the one that has uh, sort of a like a very tiny home on a on a lot in Toronto that's next to some you know some red brick row houses, and then there's a, it's also got a garage on the property in the back. It's like a classic old white house. Looks like a war style home with a detached garage in the back, graffiti on the alleyway side, kind of thing. Yeah, and it's one of those oddball houses that sticks out in the neighborhood because, you know, somebody came in, redeveloped the whole neighborhood, and you had one holdout property owner who didn't want to sell and just sat on their property to let it appreciate in value. But now the whole thing is, you know, completely covered in graffiti. It's, you know, down the side of a sketchy alleyway. And, uh, you know, the most of the house is pretty run down except for what appears to be one renovated washroom in it. Um <laughs> And uh, that one was on the market for, you know, two point something million dollars, 2.4, something like that, uh, which is, of course, the same price as a lovely, gigantic castle in Scotland, which, interestingly, I had a viewer reach out to me and said they actually lived there for a bit when they were working for the family who owns it. Oh, no way. That's fun. Hey. Yeah. Oh, that's actually kind of cool that it turned out that way and um, and worked out. Now, you've also not done rundown homes. You've done some pretty modest Canadian homes. You did one. um uh, and reviewed this one guy that was talking about the castle in Italy and his his um, stuff that he had done too, right? Like these are these are interesting, and I it, it does you like to reveal the curtain behind all the BS. I think that's fundamentally uh, in the core of your heart, isn't it? Like the hypocrites and am I reading that wrong? Yeah, I do like to uh, like really shine a light on it, which is why I always like to reveal the price last. And, uh, you know, especially when you have people from other countries watching the videos and commenting on them and saying what they thought the price would be, you know, in their own area. Um, and you can see these like, you know, crummy rundown bungalows. And uh, there was one in Toronto that was like completely destroyed. There was one in Victoria that had, had a really bad fire and the prices are still astronomical. Um, and I think it's a much more um, sort of stark wake up call 
when you actually see the little tour of the house first and then see what they're trying to get for it and then kind of imagine how how we've gotten to the point where we feel that this is a reasonable situation to be in because for many years people you know have been saying you know this is just the way that it is uh, but now we're really reaching that breaking point where I think a lot of people are struggling to find housing. A lot of people have given up on trying to get into the ownership market and are starting to realize just how it fundamentally does not make any sense to have these massive price tags attached to these very modest or even, you know, unlivable structures. It is um, quite the oxymoron really when you look at how playful the videos are and the topics are but how this is not a game in real life it is and i think that's where the contrast really kind of sinks in because you you watch the video you're like hey here's a house in british columbia and okay that's right it needs a lot of work lots of junk in the basement it's got lots of stuff like that okay they're asking for this massive price two thousand square feet and then you're like oh i uh that's a house in um that's that's a villa in Italy. And you go, oh no. Like that nine hundred thousand dollars for this. And which by the way, the millennial moron does adjust for um currency exchange too on those numbers, just to be clear. So I think it's quite unsettling. You watch it, you're like, oh, that's amazing. Oh, that's terrible. You're like, oh God, that's real. And then you leave people uh feeling uncomfortable. How do you inspire them to to be more responsible, at least if not responsible, you're not asking everyone to agree with you, but you are asking people to be more critical, which is healthy. Yeah, I think that's what I try to do with more of my analytical and spreadsheet videos is to try and break down the actual finances and you know what what is the origin of value in an investment and get people thinking about that uh, in a way that they can understand. Because I think once you sort of start to understand how money works and you know where uh, a price ought to come from. Like if you're buying a home as an investment, it should somehow be connected to the amount of rent that you would be paying if you were renting the place out or the amount of rent that you could collect if you're trying to rent it out and become a landlord. But we've seen the prices and rents become radically detached because people are banking on price appreciation. And that's how we've gotten into this sort of bubble cycle of prices just getting higher and higher because people expect that there will always be someone else to buy that from them at a higher price. And right now we are starting to see that unraveling. And I really don't want anyone to think that this was something that took everybody by surprise or something that nobody could have predicted happening or that it was, you know, we all made all the right moves and it still all went sour on us. I think uh, the important thing is to get people understanding that the situation we're in right now fundamentally does not make sense and we should not have gotten ourselves into it. Now, I don't think there's a painless way out of it. I don't think there's a nice, clean solution. But I think it's at least good for people to have their eyes open about what has happened and how it was caused and uh, how not to repeat it, if possible. We've successfully navigated this um, without politics, too, which is very good. And I think it's a nice touch that you do as well, which is great. Millennial Moron, we're going to link to all your stuff. I appreciate you being here and being so generous with your time and helping us in this community see some specific uh, comparisons of the way things truly are in Canada, not just inside our bubble. I think that matters. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with... 877-399-9898. That is our phone number for your calls, your texts. Let us know what you think about these stories that might make you ponder. Are you okay with citizenship? Citizenship? Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's cool. My buddy Mark, who I grew up with, he moved to Canada from Egypt when he was, I want to say maybe three or four, and he got his citizenship... Oof, I can't remember how many years ago. It wasn't that long ago. And uh, it was really cool watching him go through that process and like the gratitude he had for even going through it, like the work itself, and then going to the ceremony and, you know, signing off of it. It's it's kind of like uh, he described it like getting a university degree, but better. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I, I have a similar experience. A friend of mine got citizenship this year, lived here for about 20 years. 
just the best day of her life. Just that simple. I mean, if I lost my Canadian citizenship, I don't know what I would do, right? Where would I go? I, there's no other country I would like to go to. You know, it seems like an important, valuable thing for us to keep control of and becoming Canadians. Pretty awesome. People travel all over the world to become Canadians. And fulfill my duties. And fulfill my duties. And with the oath of citizenship complete, Canada has 37 new citizens that came here from 13 different countries. Congratulations. A proud moment for friends, family, and of course, the country's newest citizens. It feels great. I was waiting for this day for like almost eight months now. And yeah, it feels amazing to be here. Oh yeah, it's a great day for me today yeah, to become a Canadian citizen finally. Rodney Simmons, the citizenship judge overseeing the day ceremony, says becoming a Canadian is an emotional event for the new citizens and himself as well. Simmons says his family immigrated to Canada when he was 15 years old. It is a wonderful experience to see people saying, I'm so happy to be a Canadian because now I can be part of this wonderful tapestry, if you will, and I can be who I want to be here. Now, right at the start of that clip, you heard a bunch of people completing the oath of citizenship out loud together as a group. Soon, new Canadians might not need to. On Monday, we've talked about this before, but it came up again. The new immigration minister said she's still considering a controversial option to allow new Canadians to take their oath of citizenship with a click of a checkbox, a button, online. And there are no immediate plans to implement, so why bring it up again? The government asked for public feedback in February about the idea of allowing new Canadians to become a Canadian to skip a virtual or in-person ceremony. Instead, take the oath with a click. Consultation documents posted online say the new regulations were expected to come into force in June 2023, but the government has been mum about its plan since then. The department is still mulling it over, Immigration Minister Mark Miller said on Mondays, and he thinks it's a good idea. According to government consultation documents, the change is expected to save people up to three months of processing time. Really? That's the delay, three months. I couldn't, I can't do it. I cannot in any way support it. I can't. I think you need to say the words. I get it. Some people need to do it on video as part of a group, but these are Mm -hmm. people that are getting dressed up in some of their finest clothes and showing up and saying the words. And I think that's magical. I, I think it. the I can imagine the experience itself of standing in the room with other people and like kind of, you know, that that's a pretty welcoming moment to becoming mm-hmm. Canadian. And I do really recognize, though, that for some people, like if you live in the middle of nowhere, traveling oh, yeah. to a city, that's tough. And I'm sure that there's the, the government could probably do a better job of making that oath or that part of the process just easier and more accommodating for people with disabilities. Um, but I, I definitely don't think we get rid of the oath uh, or anything like that. The ceremony, if I moved to a new country tomorrow and I needed to become a citizen, like I would imagine the oath would be part of it. And like that moment where you're done, mm-hmm. start it. It's cool. Yeah. You got to say the words, man. You have to declare it. You just click a box. We don't even read the terms of use for anything online. That's what I feel like it is, right? Like scroll to the bottom, click OK. You're a Canadian. So we're not looking. I, I think I think it was we as Canada. We we want Canadians to be proud of the country, quality people, all those things. And I think that that stuff matters. I don't think you get that with a scroll and click. Are you okay with realtors? Ooh, I am okay with realtors. I think realtors can do a really great job to navigate the legalities of buying a major, major, major purchase in your life, a good realtor will do amazing things for you. I've had great realtors that I will use again and I trust. I've had terrible uh, realtors that have literally done nothing, made their money and ran. I've had a realtor who offered, he uh, appraised my house at $350,000. This is years ago. Said, yeah, you won't get more than three fifty dollars for it. So we're going to list that three fifty dollars and see what we can get for it. Went to a different realtor. Listed my house. Want to know what my house sold for? $410,000. So $50,000 they were willing to play with my life, my future, because they wanted to sell it quickly. So 
I, I'm, there are good ones. There are bad ones. I don't like the system of how commissions work. That's my opinion. I, I, I think your opinion is valid. It's really interesting because um, it's the kind of industry where it's easy. It can be easy because of just the way the regulations work and all that and how much money you can make for people to take advantage of it, to take advantage of the bubble, of the situation. People are desperate to find a house. That just breeds wrongdoing. But at the same time, there are so many amazing realtors. I have an amazing realtor. I've been dealing with some home stuff who has helped so much and uh, has done nothing but make what I've had to do in the background so much easier. And I can't actually even imagine the extra stress I'd be under if they hadn't done that extra work. So I'm lucky that my first experience has been so positive. But at the same time, uh, like if I was moving to another city, it would be difficult for me to find a new realtor. It's like, cause you, it's almost like you're taking a gamble. Well, it's dating. You have to date them. Dating. That's a good way of putting it. You no. really have to date them. You have to get to know them. You have to try to do the deal. And at some point you have to be able to really be willing to say some of them will make you sign a contract. You can't get out of the contract. The other ones will say, look, you have to sign the contract. You can let me out. Uh, kick me out if you don't want to be here. So uh, realtors can get creative to make homes and businesses sell more and be even more attractive to buyers. Uh, advertising a pool, for example, in some places, that might be attractive, right? Uh, maybe a greenhouse so Ryan can grow his weed plants in the backyard. And mm -hmm. um, maybe a giant garage uh, for my love affair of BMWs. I don't know. Whatever is interesting, they can just say, look at all this space for your cars. But one property in Massachusetts is going with a bit of a different approach. With her newest listing in the town of Millbury, instead of for sale on the sign in the front yard, she's put out a sign that says, probably haunted. <laughs> That's because this property, which dates back to the mid-1800s, is a former funeral oh, home. Oh, no way. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, Realtor says it could be converted back into a single-family mm -hmm. home if you'd like it. Or, or, how about this idea? A spooky bed and breakfast. So, the asking price, just $769,000. Wow, seven hundred just haunted. I, I great sales pitch. Somebody will buy it just for that reason. Uh, yes, that somebody will. I was working with some friends on a project of a short film, and we shot some of the movie at a house that was pretty spooky. And when I asked why this person bought this house in the middle of nowhere, she said because it's haunted. She actively wanted to buy a house that was haunted so that she could make it even more spooky and then also build an airbnb so she could make a spooky airbnb Perfect. on her own property it's brilliant Good marketing love it uh that's from cbs 12 by the way if it works people will come travel for ghosts ghost tourism is legitimate a thing the house was constructed as a single family home in 1850 spooky enough Converted into a funeral home in 1948, the listing states the property could easily be converted back. The building, which features three bedrooms and five bathrooms, has been owned by the same family since the 1940s. Haunted or not haunted, what do you say? Oh, that's haunted. You get 18, anything built before 1950, I would say there's a 50-50 chance it's haunted. It's, mm. it's just too long. It's just, that's been there. There have been so many people that have come and gone out of that place. It's kind of been nice. I've moved in into a brand new building. I don't even need to worry about ghosts. Well, what if there's ghosts buried under your building? They did destroy like seven homes to build this apartment right? building. So, didn't think. And I'm on the ground floor, which means I'm probably closest to the spooky stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's you. It's your fault, really. Is what it is. Spooky is the word tonight. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a spooky night. I feel like we're kind of dipping into the fall fog here. Uh, interesting stuff. This is the Shift Podcast. Weird. It got very weird. I don't understand. Welcome to the world of weird, weird things, things with Greg Fish. Tactics Online. Greg Fish has the world of weird things. It is a, a newsletter called a Substack. Actually, you can subscribe to it. You can get these newsletters delivered to your mailbox, too. We will post them at shiftheads.ca on the Facebook group as well. I want to have a conversation about how marketing 
tricks our brain inside shopping because they have so much data on us and our behaviors now through the internet and all of our computers that they're able to test a b what happens if they say there's two left what happens if they say it's well we all know the research that 1999 will buy it if it's 20 dollars. we say it's too much money all of those things are legitimate and it's not only i would like to dig into the marketing part of it the conversation part of it today though is information that gets shared online in fact, one of the things that I've seen most recently in Facebook posts, and it's genius and it's so tempting. So when you get something recommended or sponsored in your feed, it'll say something along the lines of, um, zoom in and you won't believe what you see who's in this picture or something, right? And so you have to touch on it to open it to zoom in and now the algorithm's there for you to continue receiving more suggested posts from that organization. Now, you're not gonna find anything if you zoom in. Um, you won't believe who's driving this car, blah, 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 blah. But it's marketing, and they're tricking you into touching it, opening it, and going to it. We've also heard this with Spotify from our music experts that say, in today's world of making music, they don't get paid until you stay for 30 seconds on the song, listening to it. So they get all the good stuff up front, to make you stay for 30 seconds on the song. Well, if you're online and your feed on Facebook is uh, not in Canada delivering you any news stories or whatever, um, but all of the feeds we get are doing the same tricks to exploit our brain into wanting more. Uh, what is it more that we're searching for? This is where Greg Fish comes in from California. Hey, Fishy. How's it going? Good, good. Uh, Misery Inc. How feeds exploit your brain chemistry and how to break free. So uh, we're digging into doom strolling? Question mark. Exactly. Okay. We're gonna. So we all know that we doom scroll. We all know that when we, we forget open up what we the went phone, to the phone for. Yeah, exactly. You open up your phone. It's like, oh my god, nothing but gloom and doom and terror, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and all of these like all of these horrible things. We know that happens. We know that we feel compelled to actually click on the stuff we compel to read on the stuff and and we've talked about that before a bunch we've we've already said that that's a thing but why are we so why are we talking about it again well now we can actually explain why because there have been a number of studies that can tell us exactly why our brain makes us click on these things okay come on brain don't fail me now why is so, my brain failing me? So it's actually because of the thing that you've said multiple times in some of these discussions. Your brain's a pessimist. It doesn't really care if you're happy. It just cares that you're alive. So in the ultimate manifestation of that, it turns out that when your brain encodes in your memory, there's a molecule that's involved. It's called neurotensin. And if your brain starts emitting neurotensin, you kind of going, yeah, this is a good memory. I like this. This is nice. This is nice. This is this is this is pretty okay. If it doesn't, you're thinking, you know what? I've had better memories. This one, this one, not not so good. Not not such a great memory. Um, so I'm gonna store it somewhere where I store the things that are precautionary. Although bef before I get too carried away with it, and a neuroscientist meets me in a dark alley and gives me an experience that has a profound lack of neurotensin associated with it. I'm going to say that this is kind of uh, this is this is kind of a simplification. Like there's there's some there's some more things that are happening with it, but for the purposes of this conversation, what we basically need to know is that your brain is kind of inclined not to produce too much neurotensin. So a lot of the things that you remember, a lot of things that you associate with stronger emotions, a lot of things that that get specially encoded are things that may be negative, things that may uh, maybe associated with fear, maybe associated with caution. And well, why would your brain do something like that? Well, survival, looking at all of these things that kind of make you a little paranoid, that make you a little mm -hmm. afraid, that make you question things, it makes you more likely to survive. You mm -hmm. pass on that predisposition to your offspring and they pass it on to their offspring and so on and so forth and skip a few thousand generations. And all of a sudden you're looking at an entire species that's kind of wired for pessimism and a little bit of paranoia and reacts pretty strongly to fear and doesn't really is, is really kind of on the lookout for for any sort of danger or scams or issues or problems. So when you feed that uh, particular sense, we respond quite strongly. I think of this like winning and losing. 
Some people like to win and some people don't like to lose. And that's kind of what I'm hearing here with this don't die today for your brain, right? It's kind of tricking you the same way in that a lot of people go online surfing and doom scrolling and they're learning things that make them feel good, a la this isn't going to kill me. But we often, um, it takes effort to go online and find things that are going to make you live and feel alive. That's different. And so is that sort of what you're getting at is that we feed that part of us that says, oh, uh, my job in the brain is don't die today. Well, this one is, that's not going to make me die. So that feels decent. That one eh, kind of feels like that one could kill me. So that does not feel good. And then you scroll and scroll and scroll and seek out the ones that make you, we seek out the ones that don't necessarily make us feel like we're alive and charged up and positive in life more so that we start seeking out ones that aren't so scary that we can manage and have some certainty about? Uh, not exactly. It's more like we feel compelled to check out things that make it sound like we're going to die or we're going to mm. get hurt or something bad is going to happen to us. Oh, we I get feel it. Like we totally. are, we're yeah. obliged to learn this yeah. just in case. Just in case. Yeah. Okay. So which again is don't die today. Uh, I better learn this just in case. Uh, yeah. So I know this, so I don't die today. Wait a second, this could kill me. So fundamentally, it's kind of the same. It's almost like the 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 cousin, the the reverse, the opposite, the turn around and look at it. Same thing's kind of happening. Yep. That's and then the nasty part of it is that a lot of social media companies have figured out that hey, people are compelled by this. They get into a lot of discussions. They click all of these links. They follow all mm. this clickbait. This is wonderful for us because we can show them a bunch of ads. And the longer they right. stay on the site, the more ads we can show them, the more data we can collect about them, the more we can get them. We can try to do different types of engagement so they don't get overwhelmed and leave and the more money that we can make. So the reason why I called it Misery Inc. is because the entire social media business, the entire news feed business, and I want to be very clear, news feed, not necessarily news themselves, just how that feed is curated is founded on making sure to give you a good dose of fear, a good jolt every once in a while to make sure that you're engaged, that you're paying attention well, and you're clicking on the links. You have a uh, you have a good point there is that a lot of the social companies uh, do still and used to call it your news feed um, when in fact it has nothing to do with news. So it's kind of adopting a word that's not really the case either. And, and, and I think that erodes... We've seen enough erosion of news versus fake news online in general. And I think that sort of erodes that piece of, you know, calling it a news feed. It's an info feed. It's not news. And I think they're trying to, they steal that to add some credibility to it when that's definitely not the case. Well, it, the official name for it in, in the, in the, in the technical field was timeline because timeline, the idea yeah. was that all of that information that was going to be curated in chronological order, but when the algorithms took over, they needed to call it something that was less recommended well, linear, right? feed. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, timeline's linear and it's not a timeline anymore. If it thinks that that picture of Thomas, the tank engine from four days ago is more relevant to you than um, a volcano erupting in your neighborhood. Today. Exactly. Although if the volcano is erupting in your neighborhood, I, I sure hope that you're not just like scrolling Facebook going, hmm, what yeah. is that noise? What is yeah. that noise up there? Put down the phone, friend. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So okay. so that kind of leaves us in an interesting in an interesting space where it's like, okay, this kind of sounds not that great. Is there anything like actually good about all of this? And believe it or not, there actually is. Um, there are a lot of people out there do, that have really listened to things like that and internalized things like that. So on some of these new platforms that are starting, platforms like uh, like Threads, uh, Blue Sky, all of these different spinoffs and competitors to the platform formerly known as Twitter, um, people are getting really wise about blocking all of these all of this negative clickbait. They're getting really good about blocking people who monetize fearful, outrageous clickbait to kind of pollute people's feeds. Because, and they refer to it almost like we have to like inoculate 
the platform. We have to sanitize the platform. We have to, it's not so much that they're, they're essentially saying, okay, all of this stuff should not be allowed. The companies need to come in and they need to like figure all of this out and block all these news that we don't like. It's more like if you, if this is the kind of content that you don't want to see, if you don't want to be doom scrolling, you got to block people who specialize in flooding your feed with doomsday prophecies because you're going to click on them because that's just how your brain works. Mm -hmm. So we've learned the trick we're understanding how this works, and we are starting to actually act on it in mass. And then on top of that, there's also we can talk about how this is being handled on these alternative new platforms that are rapidly growing. But at the same time, when we say rapidly growing, when you actually start comparing them to the kind of growth that was experienced before, it's it's actually not not that great. A lot of these massive platforms are in decline because again, people have figured out that once you get a platform that's big enough, you have people who are fairly miserable in life, and their joy in in life is to make you just as miserable as they are. Mm-hmm. And that there are a lot of trolls out there. There are a lot of uh, content creators and a lot of uh, prof- basically professional outrage artists who really like to get in these conversations, to get in on these uh, pity parties and start pushing their content. Again, capitalizing on this exact problem that we're talking about, your brain literally feeling compelled to click on the outrage, to click on the fear, to click on the misery, to try and avoid it, to try and figure out what may have went wrong, to try and learn from it. But in reality, you're kind of just feeding that algorithmic beast. So having learned what the trick is, and essentially shying away from it, moving away from these massive platforms into into smaller spaces where things can be a little bit more curated and a little bit more balanced, uh, blocking a lot of these people who would make these these major platforms originally insufferable. All of these are basically great signs because that's kind of how we're going to reach that equilibrium. We we need to know like sometimes the news is not happy because that's just how the world works. You can't mm-hmm. you can't always just have positive you can't always oh, you, just have great positive news stories all the time. Yeah, that's right. You have to know know the bad to know the good. You have to have them both, that's for sure. So let me ask you this then. And how is it that we can get out of that bubble and not get sucked in? Here's what I say. That we I I don't know if you've ever done this with your friends where you're out for a drink or whatever and you're like everyone show your Instagram search screen. So you touch the search screen on your Instagram. So open up Instagram on your phone and then as you open up Instagram on your phone and uh, I'm just going to do it at the right order. So Instagram opens up in your phone. If you're doing it with me, you've got your normal feed that's there, you know, your summary and stories at the top. You touch the little um, magnifying glass and that page right there, that's the algorithm, what it thinks you want. Now for me, there's a lot of Ted Lasso. There's a lot of Porsches. There's a lot of flying. There's a lot of great Danes. And then I went shopping for leggings for Melanie and I can't shake the endless feed of girls in leggings and bikinis. I I don't want that on my, on my feed. I mean, if I wanted to seek that out, I could go seek that out and I don't want to be force fed it, but because I'm 48 and I'm a male, they've take, take the overarching behavior analysis and said, this dude probably likes this. And they've been force feeding it down my throat. And all I did was go online and buy a birthday gift. And now all of a sudden, um, I'm getting fed this nonstop. And it's been months. And I cannot get rid of that. I cannot get rid of girls in bikinis on the feed. And uh, no matter what, never click them. Never open them. Nothing. Just give me the Great Danes and the construction equipment, man. I'm happy. And um, But yet, so they, they are force feeding stuff too. Or they're using an overarching uh, algorithm to feed us, or they're just monitoring everything you do. And if you happen to open up something to do with leggings or whatever on a browser, on your computer, on your Wi-Fi, in your house, welcome to the feed. It's, it is a little bit of everything. I do appreciate that you've covered yourself very extensively just now. Um, so, so great job on that. Um, uh, <laughs> my feed is like 99% dogs. I'm not really sure how that happened either. I'm not complaining, but yeah. I'm not really, but I'm not really sure how that happened either. But yes, it is. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of correlational stuff that they do. Uh, but well, if but you really actually look at bet, my search history, like what is typed into my search history, um, is things like 
uh, Mel, my kids, my buddy Brandon Alexander, um, um, my buddy Ray, um, the Hoffman process, all these different things that I, I study and I follow all along. So those, that's what's in my history, but yet there's my feed. Well, inescapable. Like I said, the, like I said, like I said, the best thing that you can possibly do is just don't engage with the stuff that you don't want on your feed. They may push, they may shove, but if you don't engage, eventually they will have to, and if enough people don't engage, they will learn that they can't just keep force feeding people this. Have the you, other uh, thing that, the other thing that you, you definitely want to do. Have you ever gone and done, have you ever gone and searched pimple popping? Don't do that. Ugh, I, mm. It's months, weeks of pimple popping. Just so you know, don't do that. Anyway, oh. as you say. Okay, now I have to get my thoughts back on track. Uh, <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. So, so you, so what you definitely need, uh, as well as an ad blocker, because mm -hmm. an ad blocker is going to help you with some of the more aggressive stuff. Um, it's not necessarily going to work on the apps, but on your browser, it will it will do a lot of uh, a lot of good for you. And and if you have if you're using a mobile browser, that will help as well. The idea behind that is that it limits your interactions with these algorithms and with the, all these different advertisers. Um, so you are going to get a lot of stuff off of your feed that way as well. So again, the idea is try not to engage with anything that you don't want to engage with as much as possible. You may feel as compelled as, as, as all hell to engage with a certain piece of news, to doom scroll, to do whatever. Don't. If you overpower yeah. yourself, for long enough, it will disappear on its own. You'll get a much more balanced feed. And on top of that, these companies, ultimately, they want to make money. And if you basically show them by your behavior and by and not just you, but all of us show them that we want something that's more balanced, that we don't want to have our attention grabbed like that, that we're willing to pay for good sources of information, that we're willing to, uh, poten to potentially... Um, uh, that that we're, that we're not willing to engage with the bait that they keep throwing at us, they'll learn their lesson because ultimately they want to keep making money. Yeah, they want to make money. Um, so what this boils down to is if your partner or whatever in your life, your friends, they see that your search page has a bunch of girls in bikinis or dudes in Speedos or whatever it is you like to search, you just have to say, Greg Fish said, my brain made me do it. That's really what it boils down to. Um. Yeah, sure. Use me for cover, by all means. <laughs> Use for, fishy for cover. Okay, the article will be at shiftheads.ca on our Facebook page. And if you click it, it'll give you more Greg Fish. Why not? Take the algorithm. Thanks for being here, buddy. Really creative stuff. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 